Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we're going south of the border to Indianapolis to talk to Jeremy Marner, and we're going to find out more about his operation called Walking Spirit. So welcome, Jeremy, and tell us where you went to school. Thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I have a degree in consumer family um, sciences from Purdue University with an emphasis specifically on the hospitality and tourism industry. Okay. And where did you go to work? So my career in the hotel industry um, began right out of college with me working in Cincinnati at um, the Marriott that was closest to Kings Island there, then going out to New Haven, Connecticut, then Corpus Christi, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, back to Indianapolis to help open the Marriott that was across from the convention center. And then five years later, found myself working as the director of operations at, uh, at a hotel at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. Wow. That's quite a range of activity. Yeah. And so that, um, that job is actually what kind of ultimately led to walking spirit because it was during a commute from Greencastle back to Indianapolis, which is about an hour drive. Um, so on my way home one night after starting that new role, uh, about six months into that job, a 16-year-old turned left in front of me on a county road, and I wound up trapped in a burning Jeep Wrangler for about 20 minutes. Um, through that, and that story we can delve into as much as you want, um, but through that experience ultimately that led to me developing my own um, business as both an inspirational speaker and a um, outreach consultant and also focused on accessible diversity equity and inclusion um, assessments and training within the public sector okay let's go back a step here now sure a 16 year old is saying I assume he crashed into you? Yeah, so um, I was on a county road going 55 miles an hour, which was the speed limit, and I had just come around a curve that it actually required me to slow down a little bit um, when another car started to pull into the intersection from a stop sign, and I didn't have a stop. And there was no time I would have T-boned that driver on the driver's side of their vehicle at 55 miles an hour if I didn't swerve, which I did. Um, but unfortunately, the other driver had no experience. They'd had their license for 20 days, and they um, slammed their foot down on the gas pedal instead of the brake, sped faster into the intersection, hit the passenger side of my Jeep Wrangler, which forced me off the road into a utility pole. That crushed the driver's side door and dashboard down around my legs, and then the Jeep rolled up onto its passenger side and caught fire. So not doing anything halfway. No, not at all. <laughs> so, yeah, and and I was very, very lucky and am very lucky to still be here. I was actually rescued that night by nobody who – no one witnessed the actual accident. Um 
and it was out in the middle of nowhere. So within a matter of minutes, a minister who planned to stay home but had a craving for food he could only get at one restaurant the next town over stopped. He was on the road. He stopped and saw when he saw the wreckage. And then um, the next person there was a retired nurse who, in her own story, was sitting at home watching TV and just felt compelled to go for a drive. And um, she drove down a road she hadn't driven down before. And as she got out of the vehicle and walked down into the ditch, this was at night, um, she almost walked into the power lines that had come down when I hit the utility pole. And a man walked out of the cornfield at that point with a flashlight and stopped her guided her around the power lines and then over to my wreckage. The three of them at that point were trying to figure out how to get me free. And the nurse was talking to me. Um, and that was when the, the fire itself erupted. Um, they fought the fire for as long as they could. The person who caused the accident did call 911 and two police officers were less than about a mile away just by chance dealing with an abandoned car. And so they came straight to the scene of the accident and fought the fire. Um, one of them, strangely, was the nephew of the nurse. And uh, and so they fought the fire, tried to pull me free three times. And on the third attempt, and they said I was conscious and telling them how to pull in which direction if I was stuck. Um, but on the third attempt, there was a loud pop. I then came free from the vehicle as it was completely engulfed. Um, in the flames and uh, the nurse said that they laid me on the ground checked to see if I was stable I wouldn't speak anymore I would only smile um, she poured bottles of water that she had in her car just drinking water over my legs and then turned to see if the man from the cornfield needed medical attention because she had seen him beating the flames out with his bare hands and he was gone um, now obviously I didn't know that I I was taken from there uh, via an ambulance to a Walmart where Lifeline could safely land and then flown to Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, uh, put into a medically induced coma. Six weeks later, I woke up in a burn unit at a different hospital, and um, which is now Eskenazi Hospital here in Indianapolis. And uh, both legs had already been amputated as a result of fourth degree burns. Uh, my jaw was wired shut, my right wrist was broken, and I had uh, broken nose, eye sockets, cheekbones, forehead. That was all shattered. Um, so I'm very, very lucky to be alive. It's <laughs> an understatement. Were you uh, married at the time, Jeremy? No, no, I was single. Um, I, I am married now. I've uh, been married for about six years and have five stepkids, most of whom are adults. And um, yeah, that's uh, that was quite a challenge. And when something like this traumatic happens to you, you have a tendency to tell yourselves certain lies. And one of those lies was that no woman would ever find me attractive again, that nobody would be interested in a in a romantic relationship with somebody with my challenges and I was completely wrong. Um, and, and very, very lucky still to, to find an amazing woman. So, yeah. So who's in charge at home? 
Uh, it's a constant partnership. Uh, <laughs> excellent. But uh, yeah, okay. depends on what we have going on. So you have four stepkids? Five. 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 But like I said, the old, the, the uh, four oldest are all adults now. So, yeah. So with all this experience, you came through it. You amazed a lot of people, I'm sure, doing it. Myself included. And uh, somewhere you came up with the incentive to start an organization called Walking Spirit. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so Walking Spirit really began during that first year of my recovery as um, I was asked to come in and speak to a group of students at Indiana University here in Indianapolis who were um, majoring in special education. And so I was asked to come in and speak about what it was like to acquire a disability. Found a great deal of catharsis in that. Um, that then also led to me learning more about myself and what had happened, including learning that I was a tissue recipient. So that then led to talking about the importance of tissue donation. Um, I learned that the blood volume of 20 different adults went through my body as I was going through multiple surgeries and, and whatnot. And so then talking about the importance of blood donation and then ultimately leading into talking about prosthetics and assistive technology and, um, and disability rights. And uh, then gradually that also turned into consulting with some hospitality operations, a few hotels, a few restaurants about how to be more accessible to people with disabilities. Something that really largely was um, left out of the training for me in my career. Um, I did not understand the importance of it until I became a person with a disability. And even at the hotel that I was managing, a week before the car accident happened, I was asked by a person in a wheelchair who was a member of the board of directors at DePaul University, who was actually providing the money for the renovation that we were doing, who asked if as part of the renovation, we would make the doors coming off the parking lot accessible because in this country, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, but this hotel was built before that was a law and no changes had been made, so it did not need to comply. And uh, so when I asked about that, I was actually told that because there was another building next door that connected to ours and it had all of the accessible entrances that were required, we were not going to have to make any changes access from an accessibility standpoint. But it made sense for the doors coming off of the main parking lot into the hotel to be accessible. It was the only place where somebody in a wheelchair could get in without needing to deal with steps or ramps of any kind. Um, and But I had been told, no, we're not going to do that. And I had to go back and tell that gentleman, no, we're not going to do that. And then I was in this awful car accident. And six weeks later, as I'm waking up and saying, when can I return to work? My boss said, what do we need to do for you to come back to work? And I had no idea, except that I was going to need those doors to be accessible. And within a week, they had an accessible door button and motors to open and close the doors. And um, and it was still a year and a half before I was able to return. 
So having said that, Jeremy, are you using a wheelchair or prosthetics or both? Both. So I have a wheelchair, actually I have several wheelchairs, one in my car that's broken down and I put it together when I need to. Um, I have a wheelchair at home that I use around the house, uh, including an extra wheelchair in a room that has a six inch sunken living room. So we have an extra wheelchair in that room. And then I walk with a pair of uh, prosthetic legs. They are the fourth set of legs that I've had in the last 17 years, um, not including the original. And um, they are in fact very advanced. They include an artificial intelligence that senses how I am moving my upper body and anticipates what I want the legs to do. So that actually has provided me with a lift assist. So when I go to stand up, the legs actually provide me with the ability to lift from the knee instead of doing it all with my shoulders and lower back. Um, so I've had those for about seven years and it's been a dramatic impact on, on my body and, and sparing some of the wear and tear that I would have had otherwise. Um, well, having said that, Talk about walking spirit now. What does it do and what, what are you doing in running that organization? Well, so walking spirit is me. Um, my my wife is on record as the CFO, but uh, but I am the one who does all the work. <laughs> and so, um, and, and really when walking spirit initially was created, like I said, I was doing public speaking and that's what I did all of that business under um, whether it was inspirational speaking or sitting on a panel discussion about the um, psychological impact of disabilities um, or anything in between those. And then within the last couple of years, as a result of COVID, um, outreach consulting got added to that as a um, nonprofit here in Indianapolis that's a disability rights organization was gradually reopening after those initial lockdowns. Um, and it's a organization run by people with disabilities who by that very nature are more vulnerable to COVID and other such challenges. Um, so they did not have anybody doing outreach at that point to say, hey, we are here, we're open, we're able to provide services to other people with disabilities. And so I started doing that um, on a contract basis. And so that we added that service. And um, then really throughout the last 17 years, whenever I've traveled, I regularly see challenges that don't need to be there, obstacles that could be removed just simply by people being more aware and sensitive and, and active in that awareness and sensitivity and actually saying, hey, this person can't get to the hot tub because it's not accessible. All you need to do is add a ramp right here and they'd be able to fully utilize the, you know, the fitness facility that you have in the hotel, um, just for, as an example, or, uh, staying in what's considered a wheelchair accessible room. Um, and, but the bathtub is not only a, what you would consider a typical bathtub, but in fact, somebody's decided it needs to be more narrow for safety reasons that really just makes it more dangerous for me. Um, these kinds of things, if we can catch when we're doing our design, then that can spare a lot of unnecessary expense fixing them down the road. Um, 
same thing when it comes to those removable barriers. If we're aware of those and we make everything accessible to everybody, then we don't need to worry about whether or not we're able to achieve diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're inviting everybody in for that very matter. So having said that, I've talked to a few people that have taken their wheelchairs on airplanes. Have you had any damage to your wheelchairs on airplanes? I So I travel is one of the scariest things for me. Um, and yet it's something that I love. But it's that is one of the things that has been a major change in my life is that I can no longer get a phone call saying, hey, can you be in Washington, D.C. tomorrow and just throw together a bag and hop in the car It's it's a, and, and go to the airport. It's a much bigger challenge now, although I have received that call since becoming an amputee saying, can you be in D.C. to testify in the House tomorrow? <laughs> and so, so we make it happen. But um, my wheelchairs, I've been lucky um, in one, I travel with a manual chair that comes apart into a lot of pieces. And so as part of that travel process from the very beginning, when I make that reservation, I'm on the phone with the airline saying, look, I have a wheelchair that comes into pieces. I don't want to put any more than the, you know, the only piece that you need to handle into your hands. So I need you to allow me to take an extra bag onto the plane that has the arms of my chair, the wheels of my chair, the all the parts that I can put in the cabin itself, um, including keeping my cushion with me and sitting on that while I'm in the plane. And and I have sent my, my frame down into the belly of the beast. And I have that, I'm first on the plane, last off the plane. And every time the, pl the I get out to that chair, I'm questioning whether or not it's still going to be in one piece. I've been very lucky. The only thing that I've ever lost is a cover that goes right on the brake handle. Um, and I actually, I told them and I sent them back underneath the plane and they found that little piece and brought it back to me. But I have friends with horror stories of traveling, especially with automatic chairs that have batteries and, and far more complicated pieces than what I have. Um, who've gotten to their destination and they've not been able to move because their chair has been destroyed in the flight. Well, we've got a couple of Canadians that are real interesting. Out of Toronto, there's a, a lady that runs an organization called Access TO. And she okay. Was, she was going to a conference in Israel and um, the airline mangled her wheelchair big time. So there's lawsuits in progress, that kind of thing. And it's it's all unnecessary if if we would simply take that moment to recognize how vital that piece of equipment is to the person that's putting it in in their hands when they travel. And um, if if there I, there are lots of things that the airlines can do to make certain that does not happen. And then if it does, there are better ways to correct it than leading to a lawsuit. Um, well, the other interesting one, Jeremy, is a 14-year-old out of Edmonton, Alberta. And uh, her daughter has cerebral palsy, 
and is in a wheelchair. And what the family did is they started a modeling agency of disabled people. Wonderful. And they have 50 people that they represent who do photo shoots and all kinds of brand operations. Sure. Which is pretty neat. So she, she was in Toronto last weekend, and they went uh, down. She went down the runway, and she sent me the video. And I'm going to forward you the video, which I think you find it interesting. Absolutely, please do. Okay, so having said this, right now you're a one-person operation. Yes, and you should be bigger than that. So three years from today, what's Walking Spirit going to look like? Uh, you know, that vision is to grow to a point where um, not only am I doing that consulting, but that other people with disabilities in other parts of the country and the world are able to do that kind of consulting and help prove to everybody within the public sector that um, the more accessible we make our society, the more complete we make our society. And um, the, one of the interesting things that I've learned through COVID actually by, re by connecting through this method, through Zoom, with lots of people with disabilities all over the world is that one, I can find somebody like myself in every culture in the world because disabilities don't care about any other aspect of your culture they impact everybody and granted it in the united states we have civil rights laws and protections and access to certain technology that in other countries they may not have um we're, we're lucky in that aspect but we actually have a shared history as a people with disabilities that spans the history of the world and crosses every border um so recognizing that people with disabilities actually are the largest minority in the world our society needs to represent and 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 recognize that well what's interesting is a little company called amazon 30 percent of their employees have a disability but what's even more interesting is only 3.7 percent identify having a disability and that's a bit of a problem in itself and that people don't speak out and say they have a disability and i believe that that's a result of again a global history of approaching disabilities from a medical model as if disabilities are things to be fixed instead of approaching them as from a social model recognizing again that if that disabilities are an aspect of life and that in order to ensure that everybody is able to engage in all aspects of life, we have to build a society that is accessible to all different people, including all different disabilities. Okay. So for Walking Spirit, do you have any partnerships? Um, so I, I mean, in terms of actual formal partnerships, I would say no, but, but I do regularly partner with um, Accessibility Center for Independent Living here in Indianapolis. Um, also through 
in, in regards to my outreach services, my current client is a home health care company um, that provides Medicaid waiver services to people in Indiana. And um, that's a program here in the United States that supports home-based care um, and, and home and community-based care. And uh, so... I would consider them both partners. And then also, also through that, I've recently developed a network um, of the different organizations, and we're still growing this within Indiana that are working in the disability and conditions of aging communities. Okay. So having said that, what is the website for Walking Spirit? That is walkingspirit.org. And I can be reached through that and um, regularly also keep a blog on the website. So sometimes that blog is, in fact, going to be a recording of the monthly meeting of that Disabilities and Conditions of Aging Network. Other times it's going to be me talking about what it's like to have gone through 17 years as a bilateral above knee amputee and a burn survivor or anything in between. So, like, for instance, Starbucks having accessible parking spaces in the wrong locations. 